Well, hello, Rocky Peak. It's great to be with you. My name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your very first time, I want to welcome you. Um, and I wish you could be here for this time of worship. It's just awesome. You know, we've got the whole place. It's obviously a little bare. You know, it's sort of me here. But I get to, to enjoy the worship uh, firsthand every week. And I hope that God's just meeting you in a powerful way. I'm so thankful for the band. It's just a great job they're doing. Continue to, to lead us in worship as we move through this crisis. But I'm really excited to be going into our time of teaching right now. And so inside, I was going to say inside your program, kind of old, old habits uh, die slowly. But I uh, hope you've uh, printed that off from the website. Like Caleb said, I made some last minute changes. And so that's why uh, we got to get an updated one if you got it real early in the week. But uh, looking forward to, to jumping in. So if you've got that, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll kick off our, uh, this time of teaching. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful to be here in your place underneath your leadership. And God, we just thank you that you are king over your creation. And today we explore what that means, what it means for, for Jesus to be king, what it means for him to be king in our lives in the midst of crisis. We just pray that you'd open up the word to us in a powerful way, and God, you would do what only you can do. You would make your word come alive. You'd open the eyes of our heart that we would see the reality, not just the words on the page, but the reality that which they describe. We'd enter into that uh, so we could experience your leadership uh, and your lordship in our life, especially in the midst of this crisis. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, our story starts today in the late spring of the year. The days are getting longer, and the weather is getting warmer, even though it's here in this mountain town. But tonight, the day is over, and it's a cool evening as he gathers with his friends for dinner. The last couple of months have been crazy. They're still processing it all. It's, uh, it's been a time of unparalleled joy, and yet it's a time also of unparalleled uncertainty. He often wonders what the future will be like. Will he ever make it back home? Will he and his family ever continue on with life as normal again? But tonight, he's having dinner with his friends. And what's on his mind tonight is what they all experienced today. Because today they, they experienced something, they saw something they thought they would they, never see, they would never see. It just, they thought they'd seen it all. But what they saw today, nothing had prepared them for. And this was the talk of dinner. Well, today we are continuing our new series that we kicked off last week that's called The Power of the Resurrection, Hope in Times of Crisis. And uh, if you've been here in this, uh, uh, if, you're, if you're new, we want to welcome you. If you're here last week, you know, this is a series about the resurrection of Jesus and how the resurrection of Jesus was not really the end of his life. It was the start of a whole new era of his life. And not only a start of a whole new era in his life, but the start of a new era in all creation and in each of our lives when we come to him. And so what we're doing in this series is we're taking uh, a look at uh, a book in the Bible. It's called the book of Acts that follows up immediately the account of the resurrection of Jesus, what happened after he left. So if you have your Bibles with you today, I encourage you, if you've got your apps, go ahead and open up to, uh, to Acts chapter one, turn on to Acts chapter one. We're gonna pick, uh, kick it off right at the very beginning just to set the stage, but then we'll quickly jump down further in the passage. And so there in your note sheet, 
We have a section called The Ascension, The Return of the Hero. And we're going to pick it up at, uh, like I said, at verse 1, and, uh, and we'll start there. So in Acts 1 and verse 1, uh, Luke starts off and he says, in my former book, Theophilus, and so remember that the author of the book of Acts is, is a man named Luke. He's a follower of Jesus. Uh, he came to Jesus fairly early in the movement of Jesus. He's a Gentile, he's a doctor, and he's writing a two-volume account of the life and teaching of Jesus and then the launching, the starting of his movement as it kind of moves from Jerusalem across to the center of the empire at, at the city of Rome. And so uh, he's dedicated both his volumes, volume one, the Gospel of Luke, volume two, the, the book of Acts, he's dedicating to this uh, Roman aristocrat, uh, apparently a person who's recently come to Jesus or perhaps just checking out Jesus, and his name is Theophilus. And so he says, in my former book, Theophilus, so this would be the Gospel of Luke, he said, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus be began to do and teach. So his life, his birth, his, his ministry, his teaching, uh, his death, his resurrection, a little bit of his ascension. He said, that, that's how I started volume one. The implication, of course, is that in volume two, he's going to continue the journey. Uh, what happened after the resurrection of Jesus, what Jesus did after the resurrection. And so he says in verse two, so... So volume one uh, covered until the day he was taken up into heaven, what we call the ascension. That's sort of our topic on the table today. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. Now I want you to jump down to verse uh, nine because topic on the table today is what we call the ascension or the return of Jesus to his father in the heavens. And so in verse nine, uh, it says, after he had said this, talking about Jesus, uh, Jesus had just told them, hey, do, when, I, when I leave, don't leave Jerusalem until the gift of the Holy Spirit comes. So stay there. So after he had, after he had um, said this, he was taken up in, before their very eyes. So he just apparently just sort of kind of, kind of levitates, kind of hovercrafts up, uh, defying gravity. And he's taken up before their area, very eyes and a cloud hit him from their sight. Now this is interesting because it's very likely that Luke is telling us something here very significant, more than what's on the surface. Uh, what we see is in the nation of Israel, in the story of Israel, that there's a long history of God coming to his people uh, in clouds. For example, when the nation of Israel first came out of slavery in Egypt, God led them three months later to Mount Sinai, and then he appeared to them in an amazing display of power, and he came to them in dark clouds. Later on, he commanded Moses to build a special tent, a tabernacle where God could live and dwell with the people and they'd worship him. And when the tabernacle was finished being built in Exodus 40, God came, his glory came in the presence of a cloud. And from that point on, when the cloud would move, the nation would move. When the cloud would stay still, the nation would stay still. Uh, hundreds of years later, when they built the temple, when it was finally finished and Solomon dedicated, he, pr he prayed that God would come, that God came and filled the temple with his presence like a cloud. And so often in scripture, the presence of God comes like in a cloud. And so it's very likely 
that what's happening here, it's not just like Jesus ascended into heaven and bummer, uh, it was a cloudy day and so we only watch him kind of like watching a kite, you know, disappear and you're just watching as long as you can and then bummer, this big cloud got in the way. There's something more than that going on. It's very likely that Jesus is ascending into the heaven and returning to the clouds that speak of the presence of God. And so anyway, while they're watching this, and of course, they've never seen something like this before. I mean, at this point in their life, they've seen a lot of things. Jesus do a lot of things. They've watched him walk on water. They've watched him turn water into wine. They've watched him command the wind and the waves, but they've never seen him uh, levitate, hovercraft up, defy the laws of gravity. And so they're, they're standing there. Uh, they're, they're just kind of looking up in the sky like you're watching a kite that's disappearing. And all of a sudden, these two men show up. Now, what's interesting is if you were here on Easter with us, we, I, I did a message called Missing the First Day. The way that story starts off is in Luke 24, the very last chapter of volume one, The way it starts off is the women go to the tomb of Jesus to anoint his body very early in the morning. And if you remember when they get there, the the stone is rolled away, they go inside the tomb, and, and while they're shocked, all of a sudden two men dressed in white show up, turns out to be angels, say, hey, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? What's interesting is now in chapter one of Acts, once again, we have two men showing up, dressed in white, maybe the, the same two messengers, we don't know, and they're gonna ask a really funny question. They're gonna ask a question, hey, why are you looking up in the sky? And I'm thinking like, what are you talking about? We just watched Jesus levitate, hovercraft, defy gravity. Like, we've never seen that. Apparently, to the angels, no big deal. It's like, hey, where we come from, that's normal. But anyway, they say, uh, so in uh, verse 10, so they're looking up intently in the sky as he was going. And when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, they said, men of Galilee, and of course, remember, these men are from the north of Israel, up what we call the Galilee, Jerusalem's in the south. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking up in the sky? And then they said, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, catch this, that he will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, what's interesting is in volume one of Luke, in Luke 21, Jesus had said that one day he would come back on the clouds of heaven. And so here we have Jesus disappearing in the clouds and the angels say, uh, one day he's coming back the same way. And so then in verse 12, so the apostles are gonna return to Jerusalem. Now, it's not very far. For those of you who have been with us to Israel or if you've ever been to Israel, uh, right outside the uh, city of Jerusalem on the eastern side, uh, you have a, a small kind of a hill mountain uh, called the Mount of Olives. Uh, for those of you who've been there with us, this is where we, we, uh, we kind of look over the Temple Mount. You see the Dome of the Rock down below. It's not very far. We, we walk down through the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe 15 minutes to get into the, the old city walls. Not very far. And so this is where it was taking place. And so the apostles returned to Jerusalem, verse 12, from a hill called the Mount of Olives. And it's a a Sabbath day's walk, very short distance. Uh, Your footnote here will say five-eighths of a mile, maybe three-quarters of a mile, about a kilometer for those of you who are overseas. Uh, A a Sabbath day walk from the city. 
Right? So they're gonna head back to the city. Now, this has got to be an incredibly amazing day. And this takes us back, I think, to the story that we started the day with, sort of my historical reconstruction of that day. Remember, we started the day with the story of a man who is kind of reflecting back on the last couple months of his life, uh, incredible time, unparalleled joy, but also unparalleled uncertainty. It's the late spring of the year. The days are starting to get longer. The weather's uh, warming up, even though he's in a mountain town. Um, but as he's, on this particular day, the evening is calm, the weather's cool, he's having dinner with his friends, wondering about the future, but the talk of the whole dinner uh, is what they had seen that day. And like I said, they'd seen it all, walking on water, water into wine, commanding the wind and the waves, but they'd never seen this, just hovercraft up. And so they're they're talking about that. They're reflecting on that and wondering what does the future hold? What's it gonna be like when the Holy Spirit's gonna come? What's gonna happen? How long do we have to wait? Jesus said, wait, not many days. How long is that? Will our lives ever be the same? Will we ever go back to Galilee? There's a lot of unanswered questions. From this point on, they'll begin to wait. And in about 10 days, the Holy Spirit is going to come. Of course, they don't know that. We're gonna talk more about that next week. But for today, I wanna to talk about this incredibly important event that we call the Ascension of Jesus. It's one of those events that we often tend to overlook, minimize, miss the whole point, but it's one of the most important events in the life of Jesus, and it's an especially important event for us to understand at this point in our lives, right in the middle of this crisis. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called The Ascension, The Coronation of the King. So let's jump in. What I wanna do is I wanna start by highlighting three reasons or three big picture principles why the ascension of Jesus is so important, especially in a time like this, uh, and then come back at the end and ask three important questions that flow out of this passage for our life. So let's jump in. So the first point, that, you, know, you know, why is the ascension so important? Well, as we're gonna see, the ascension has to do with this coronation of the king. And so the first point goes like this, that Jesus is the resurrected king. That's what the ascension is all about. Now, uh, my conviction is that most of us, even if we are longtime Christ followers, that most of us tend to underestimate or miss the significance of the, uh, the ascension of Jesus. We understand the importance of the death of Jesus. We understand that at the death of Jesus, something happened. In the spiritual realm, there was a transaction that happened. Our sins were paid for. The powers of darkness were dethroned. They were, they were conquered. We understand, and we're learning a little bit more the last couple of weeks, the importance of the resurrection. We understand at the resurrection that something happened, and not just for Jesus, but for all creation. We're learning that the resurrection was the first step in the recreation of all creation, and that when we come to Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus is the first step of our new life. So we understand with the death and the resurrection, there is a transition 
transaction. Something happens, something changes. But what we don't understand is the same is true with the ascension of Jesus. Because what we're told in the New Testament is that when Jesus ascended to the Father, something happened. A transaction happened. A change of status happened. A change of title happened. That when Jesus returned to the Father in the ascension, it was at that point in time that Jesus was crowned king of creation. Now, it's interesting because the way the New Testament says this, and it says it over and over again, is it uses language that's a little bit strange for us today. The way it says it is that that when Jesus returned to the Father, ascended, that he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, to you and I, that just conjures up pictures of big throne and little throne, you know, and Jesus sitting down next to the big throne. That's not the point. This was a symbolic way of describing what happened when Jesus returned to the Father and was crowned king of creation. Now, to understand this, we have to go back to a very important prophecy in the Old Testament. The prophecy is in Psalm 110, and it is so important to catch this. This is the most commonly quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. That's how important it is. So I put it there on your note sheet, but I wanna give you a little bit of background. So this is a Psalm from King David. And so King David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he sees this scene in heaven. And in heaven, you have Yahweh, the Lord, Uh, speaking to the son of David, uh, the Messiah, uh, and somehow that Messiah has ascended into the presence of God. And in this interaction, Yahweh says to the Messiah that David calls my Lord. Interesting, it's his son, and yet he calls him my Lord. That in this interaction, Yahweh says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, sit here, I'm crowning you king over all creation. Sit here until I bring all your enemies under your leadership and you have complete and total rule over all creation. Now, what's interesting is this is the verse that is quoted over and over in the New Testament that's speaking of what happened when Jesus returned to heaven. That what happened when Jesus returned, that he had carried out his mission. He had lived a life of perfect obedience. He had loved God and loved people. He had lived the life for you and me that we are incapable of living. And then he had died the death for us for our forgiveness of sins. And in that process, he had dethroned the powers of sin and darkness, satanic powers. And then he rose from the dead, conquering death, not just for himself, but for our whole race. And so he returns to heaven as the conquering hero, the son of God, who is the son of man, who's restoring all of us to the role we were created to play, to rule with him over creation like we were designed to do. And this coronation takes place at the ascension. 
You get a feel for this. I want to give you just one example. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we will come to Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, uh, it's a description of when the Holy Spirit comes to the early church. And so it's about 10 days after the ascension. I won't go into detail because we'll be looking at it in detail in a couple of weeks. But when the Holy Spirit comes, one of the things that happens is that the Holy Spirit fills all the believers, all the followers of Jesus, about 120 people, and they all began to prophesy like the prophets of old. And they all begin to praise God for what he's done through the Messiah, but they prophesy in language, foreign languages they've never heard. This happens on the day of Pentecost, one of the three big annual Jewish pilgrim feasts. So the temple is packed with thousands and thousands of pilgrims. And when this happens, all the people come together trying to figure out what is going on. How can these uneducated Galileans be speaking all these foreign languages as if they're cosmopolitan world travelers? And Peter gets up and he says, let me explain to you what is happening here. In the unseen realm, what is happening and why this is manifesting like that. And there in your note sheet, this is what Peter says. He says, here's what's happening. He said, God has raised this Jesus to life. Now remember, it's only a couple months since he was, less than two months, he was crucified right here in Jerusalem. Many of his people likely were there, maybe even participated in that event of saying crucify him. We're not sure. But he says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of that, the, the apostles. And then he, he starts using Psalm 110 language. He says, exalted to the right hand of God, right? He's come to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit that the prophets of Israel promised would come. And he's poured out what you now see and hear. So what you're hearing, what you're seeing, these people prophesying the power of the Spirit, languages they never learned, that is the result of Jesus pouring out his Spirit. And then he says, for David did not ascend to heaven. David never ascended to heaven, right? But Jesus did. And yet he said, looking into the future, the Lord, all caps, right? Yahweh. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so what Peter says is, hey, do you want to understand what's going on? Why all these people are prophesying? Here's what's happened. Jesus was the Messiah he rose from the dead. He ascended into the presence of God. This conversation has taken place. He has now been crowned king of the universe. And he has received from the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's pouring it out. And that's why this is happening. So what we need to understand is that for Jesus, that he went through a change of status when he returned to heaven. He had carried out his mission, and now as the son of God and the son of man who has conquered sin and death, he is crowned king of creation. Last week, I introduced you to one of my favorite scholars. His name is F.F. Bruce. He's now with the Lord, one of the top, uh, kind of top scholars of the 20th century. And uh, in his commentary on Colossians that we looked at a little bit last week, 
Uh, it's this passage where we're said that if you've been resurrected, if you've been raised up with Christ, then seek the things above. This is what F.F. Bruce comments on that passage. It's there on your note sheet. He says, Christ's ascension, remember that's the topic, Christ's ascension to the right hand of God was an essential and a constant element in the earliest apostolic preaching. You catch what he's saying? He's saying in the apostolic preaching, when they're telling the story of Jesus, it's not just his death, it's not just his resurrection, it's his death, it's his resurrection, it's his ascension to be the top ruler in the universe. He said, but after his resurrection, the apostles proclaimed that the enthronement to which he had looked forward had actually taken place. Christ was now reigning as king from the right hand of the Almighty and would continue so to reign, catch this, we'll talk about it later, until all opposing forces in the universe had submitted to him. That's what he's talking about, that uh, all the enemies be put under his feet. Then catch this, the apostles knew very well that they were using figurative language when they spoke of Christ's exaltation in these terms, you know, right hand of God. He said they no more thought of a location on a literal throne at God's literal right hand than their 20th century successors do. In other words, yeah, this is poetic language, right? But it's describing a reality that when Jesus returned, uh, he had conquered sin and death, defeated the enemies, and this is in, in, like Paul says in Philippians, he's now received the name above uh, all other names to which everyone will bow, that Jesus is now the resurrected king. So the first thing we have to understand is the reason the ascension is so important is because the ascension uh, leads us to this, this coronation ceremony where Jesus becomes king, the resurrected king of all creation. And that leads to number two. We've got three points today. I'm gonna, three, three basic principles. They all build on one another. So let's move on to number two. So number two goes like this. That when we say Jesus is the resurrected king, what we mean by that is that Jesus is in charge of all creation. So when we say that Jesus is a resurrected king, we don't mean that just in a spiritual sense. We don't mean it in this sort of religious sense. Oh, Jesus is king. What we mean that in every sense, spiritual, political, uh, governmental, that he is the top ruler in all of creation. You say, what do you mean? Do you mean that he is over Donald Trump? Yes, he's over Donald Trump. Is he over Vladimir Putin? Yes, he is. Is he rule over communist China? Yes, he is. That Jesus is the top authority in the universe, not in the future, but here, right here, and right now. Now, the New Testament is very clear that this is still a hidden reality that this is not an obvious, this will not become obvious until Jesus comes back. The New Testament's also very clear that we live in a fallen world, and at this point, Satan is the ruler of this world. Jesus has not yet taken his power and begun to uh, enforce it, but the reality is, is that he is the top leader in the universe, 
and all things are under his authority. Let me give you an example of this. In Matthew 28, which is the final chapter, chapter in Matthew's gospel. So Matthew's gospel, he doesn't end with an ascension. He just ends with this final charge that Jesus gives to his followers, a very famous passage we call the Great Commission. But I want you to notice, you may, you may be familiar, if you're a longtime follower of Jesus, you may be very familiar with this passage, but we often overlook how it starts and what Jesus says, which is so important. So in Matthew 28, this is how Jesus starts his final charge to his followers. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Now I want you to underline that, don't miss it. What Jesus is saying is now by virtue of his life, his death, his resurrection, that all authority in heaven and earth belong to him. That Jesus is now king over the created cosmos. And he has authority over the seen realm and the unseen realm. He is the ultimate authority. And it's because of this then, Notice that he, he kind of lays the groundwork and then he says, and because I'm the king, because I'm in charge, he said, therefore go and make disciples, uh, followers of all nations. He says, in this time, between the time of his ascension when he becomes the king and the time when he comes back to enforce his kingdom, this is this kingdom age where our job as followers of Jesus is to bring the good news that the, the true king of creation has come. He's died for us. He loves us. And in spite of our rebellion, he wants to rescue us. And he's offering terms of peace. And so he says that we're to go and make disciples of all nations. The way you do that is when you become a follower of Jesus, you're baptized. Kind of the initiation right into the movement of Jesus. So you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we're gonna teach them to obey, let's catch that, to obey, uh, that's what you do with kings, you obey everything that I have commanded you. And then he promises, I'll be with you every step of the way uh, until the end of this age and the new age comes. So what I want you to catch is that uh, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to become under his rule. And so, uh, the Bible teaches, the New Testament teaches, that not only is Jesus our resurrected king, but what that means is that he is in charge of the entire universe. He's the ultimate authority, not in the future, but here and now. And that leads us to number three. The third principle goes like that, that if that's true, if Jesus is the resurrected king, and if he's in charge of the, the entire creation, what that means then is that Jesus rules over this current crisis that you and I are facing every day, that he rules over this global coronavirus crisis. That uh, this has not taken him by surprise, uh, that he has, uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not outside of his control, that he has a plan and he's working his plan. Now, as I've said several times, when we say that Jesus is king and that he's the ultimate authority, we are not saying that he's taken his power and begun to enforce that to make the kingdom of this world that is still ruled by Satan and to 
to bring it under his complete rule to destroy all evil and to bring in the new kingdom. That's going to happen in the future. In fact, there's a powerful passage in the book of Revelation. And so in, Revel- in the book of Revelation, if you're not familiar with that, the book of Revelation is the last book in the, in the New Testament, in the Bible. And it describes what's going to happen at the end of time. And one of the three, uh, in, that, in, the, in the book of Revelation, there's a series of three, um, three series of judgments, of seven judgments each that, that come upon a rebel race that refuses to repent and come under the leadership of Jesus as their true king. And so the, the, first, the first set of judgments is called the seven seals, uh, and then you have the seven trumpets, and then you have the seven bulls. And every time um, like a seal is opened or every time a trumpet is blown, every time a bowl is poured out, some sort of disaster happens that's really designed to bring the world to repentance, but sadly doesn't, uh, doesn't really do so. But in the second series of uh, the cycle of judgment, uh, towards the end of the seven trumpets, um, we have this fascinating passage of scripture. And so uh, in Revelation 11, uh, John the apostle who's recording what he's seeing, he says the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven. So these seven trumpets, every time an angel blows a trumpet, a disaster happens. So the seventh angel sounds his trumpet and when he, when he sounds it, uh, I want you to see what happens. He hears this loud voice in heaven which says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Messiah. Now what does that sound like? That sounds like Psalm 110, doesn't it? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. What Revelation 11 is saying is that the time has come when that is going to happen. That the, uh, the kingdom of this world, that's a fallen kingdom, the realm of Satan uh, and his rulers, there'll come a time when Jesus says, that's it. Time is up. I don't know if you stop and think about this, but the reality is if you say, well, why doesn't Jesus just take his power and enforce it here and now. But the reality is, is that when Jesus comes, that he will come uh, not just to rescue his people, but to bring judgment on all those who are rebellious. And so we're in an age where salvation is being offered. When he comes, that will end. And so due to the patience of God, not wanting any to be lost, but all to come to the knowledge of the truth, we live in this time where God is giving the race every option. And these judgments are designed to open their eyes so that repentance will come to repentance to our true king. But in in chapter 11, God says the time has come. The time has come for the kingdom of this fallen world to become the kingdom of of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And so the tw- there's these 24 elders who are seated on their thrones before God and they fall on their faces and they worship God. And you say, why are they worshiping? Because they're so excited that finally the time has come for this evil 
demonic kingdom to be wiped out and the kingdom of God to come. And they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, and catch this, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. You see that? You've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. You had the power, but you had not begun to reign. Many of you know that I'm a a student of Roman history, just fascinated by Roman history to understand the lifetimes of Jesus and and the early church. And often what would happen in, in Roman history is that when a new Caesar would rise to the throne, that uh, he might have plans to implement kind of new policies or um, new legislation or new rules or even to launch new uh, campaigns, military campaigns at the edge of his empire to expand it. But there was always a lag between the time he would ascend to the throne and the time that his rules, his implementation would actually make it its way out. And in a way, that's what's happening, is that when Jesus ascended to the throne, uh, he became king of creation. But we're sort of in that in-between now, a time where he hasn't taken his power and begun to reign. But when he does, then the kingdom will come. And he says, so he says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and you have begun to reign. And catch this, the nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The judgment of God has come on a rebel race. The time has come for the judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So here in Revelation 11, we see this turning point in world history where God says time is up. It's now time to make the kingdom of this world the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It's time to bring this story to an end. And so what we see here is that not only is Jesus the resurrected king, what that means is he's in charge of all of his creation, But what it means is he's also in charge of this current crisis. Now, if you were to ask me, so what is Jesus up to? What what is going on with coronavirus? Why is this happening? I'd have to say to you, I don't know. I don't have a clue. I don't feel like I have any prophetic insight. I don't want to pretend that at all. But here's what I know. Whenever a crisis like this happens, it reminds us of the big picture story the Bible is telling. And the big picture story the Bible is telling is that we are a rebel race. And as a result of our sin and rebellion, we live in a fallen world. It's why these kinds of things, it's why sickness, it's why disease, it's why oppression, it's why sex trafficking, It's why famine, it's why this kind of disaster happens. We live in a fallen world. And this is a reminder to us that it's so important when something like this happens, it's like a spiritual wake-up call to remind us of who God is, who we are, and how important it is that we come under the leadership of King Jesus, 
so that we can be rescued from the fallen world and the ultimate judgment that one day is coming. And so this leads to some important questions for each of our lives as we go through this crisis. If Jesus is king, what are the implications for our lives and how do we need to be responding as followers of King Jesus in the midst of this current crisis? So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the Ascension, three key questions. And so I wanna ask three questions to take what we've learned, apply it to our lives, our different situation. The first question I have is the most obvious question. The question is, is Jesus your king? We've seen today that Jesus is king. He's king of all creation. He's not just a wise spiritual leader. He's not just our favorite spiritual guru. He's not just our buddy, that he is king over creation, that he's coming back one day to restore all creation, turn all wrongs to right, and that he is the one that we will all stand before one day and go one-on-one, and that our relationship with Jesus will determine our relationship for eternity. And so the question is, is Jesus your king? Have you come to a place where you have bowed your knee to your king? You've asked him into your life. You've asked him to forgive your sins and rebellion, and you've surrendered your life to his leadership, as he said, to come under him, to follow him, and to obey everything he's taught us. Is that happened in your life? You know, one of the kind of strange things that's happened, at least here in America. I don't know if it's as much around the world or not. But there's sort of a strange teaching that's gotten unleashed often in churches that it's possible to believe in Jesus as our Savior from our sins, but not bow the knee to Jesus as our Lord and as our King. And I'm not sure how that got started, but I think it's very dangerous teaching. Because what we see today is that Jesus is king. It's who who he is. And there's only one way to relate to a king, and that's with obedience. And so did he die for us? Of course he died for us. Does he love us? Of course he loves us. It's why he came to live and die that we might be rescued. He's given his life for us. But in order to become a follower of Jesus, we need to bow the knee and come under his leadership surrender our life, receive his free gift of amnesty for all crimes against the king, receive the gift of his spirit who brings his resurrection life that we can rise with him to a new life. It's interesting, the apostle Paul in Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 10 gives one of his short versions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a Christian. In Romans chapter 10, it's a very famous verse. And this is what he says. He says, if you confess with your mouth, in other words, this is a confession of your heart. This is who I am. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that he's king, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise 
of the New Testament. But catch the promise. The promise is if you confess Jesus is Lord. You know, it's interesting. Scholars tell us that this phrase, Jesus is Lord, is probably the very first creed of the early church, what Christians would say when they were baptized. And it's very significant because in the Roman Empire, Caesar was Lord. In fact, Christians later would get into trouble and often be persecuted and even put to death because as emperor worship grew in the first century, that you were required as a Roman citizen in some parts of the empire to go into a temple to worship Caesar as a god and to take a pinch of incense and to bow down and to pray to Caesar and to make the confession that Caesar is Lord. And of course, the early Christians couldn't do that. They said, no, he might be ruler here, but there is another Lord. There's one that's higher. And so many gave their life because they refused to say Caesar is Lord. So this language is powerful language. And Paul says, writing to the Romans, catch which book, in Rome where Caesar is on his throne. And he says, if, any of you, if anyone confesses, makes the confession publicly, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the question I have for you in the midst of this crisis, this crisis is a reminder that we live in a fallen world, a world under judgment. The judgment is coming. I'm not saying this coronavirus is a judgment. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. But what I'm saying is it is a reminder that we live in a fallen planet. And this is a planet in rebellion. And that the king has come and given his life to rescue us. That we might be forgiven, restored, start a whole new resurrection life. But it requires that we bow the knee to King Jesus. So the question is, is Jesus your king? The second question is, are you trusting your king? So let's say that you say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. I've given him my life. I've received the gift of forgiveness of sins. I've received the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower me. And so if you say, yes, Jesus is my king, the question I have for you is, are you trusting your king? You know, we are in the midst of very uncertain times. I don't think anyone knows for sure how this is gonna play out. You read articles in the newspaper, the internet, news services, everyone's got a different predict prediction, how long this is gonna go, what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen in the economy, how many people are gonna sick, how many more people are gonna die. It's very uncertain times. And it can be very unsettling. And a couple weeks ago in my life group, in our small group, in our life group, uh, our co-leader asked us a question. And his question was this. He said, hey, during this crisis right now, what is your biggest concern? What causes the greatest fear? What do you wake up in the morning thinking about? And as you might expect, the answers of our group were, we're very, they're very raw, very authentic, but they're also very diverse and yet very overlapping. 
There were, there were some who were concerned primarily about the financial aspect. They've lost a job. Can they pay their bills? Others concerned about the economy, the big picture of the economy. Some are concerned about the relationships and the strain it's putting on relationships. For others, the biggest issue is the sense of isolation and even depression. For others, uh, it was a sense of life feels out of control. For some, it was concerned over the coronavirus itself, over their health or the health of loved ones. For some, it was the inability to go visit relatives very sick in the hospital because of the virus situation and the stress and the fear that that's creating. For others, it was just the, the stress of managing life. How do you manage life when you have to work at home and you're all together in a small area and you're trying to homeschool your kids and get it all done? It's very unsettling. It's a very unsettling time. But what we've learned today is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we have a king. And he's a king in charge of his creation. He's working in this situation. This is not taken in by surprise. He sees your need. He sees your family. He sees your situation. He knows your checkbook. He knows your health. That you have a king. I have a king. And that king is in control. And so the question is, are you trusting your king? Remember a few weeks ago, when this whole crisis first hit, we did a series called How to Cope with the Crisis. So one of the things we looked at is that passage in, in the Gospel of Mark, where in the midst of the storm, Jesus was asleep in the boat. And I asked you the question, who's in the boat with you? And so the question I have, as this crisis prolongs, the question I have for you is, are you trusting your king? Are you trusting he sees you, he knows you, he knows what's going on globally, he knows what's going on individually, he's with you in the boat. Are you trusting your king? And the final question is, are you standing with your king? I don't know about you, but I, you know, I, I don't know what Jesus is doing. I don't pretend to understand how this fits into the whole scope. But one thing I know is that I want to stand with Jesus for his purposes to advance his kingdom in the midst of this crisis. You know, in the midst of a crisis, we can become very self-absorbed my life, my concerns, my family, my needs. And that's very natural, right? And it's very appropriate for us to go before God with whatever concerns us, whatever our fears, to pray, to bring those things, to seek him for direction and for his peace. Super appropriate. And I certainly am doing that in my own life. I, along with you, I'm praying for an end of this crisis. I'm praying for a vaccine to be discovered. I'm praying that social distancing can be eventually reduced, that we can go back to work, we can meet together, the schools can open, that people can stop dying. I, with you, am praying for God's mercy and his compassion. But here's what I want to suggest. 
that when I'm praying, I am also praying, Jesus, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, I want to stand with you. And I want to stand with you for your kingdom. One of the things I know, and you know this from your life, I know it from mine, is that often it's in time of crisis we grow the most. Often it's when we come to Christ in times of crisis. Often for you, for I, for many of us, we came to Jesus through hard times when there was pain, when life was out of control, and it caused us to question our theory of life, and it helped us to realize our vulnerability, and it opened us up spiritually to what God is doing, and as a result of that, we came to Jesus. And I'm telling you, I don't know what's going on with this situation, but here's what I know. We live in a world that is far from God, whether it's our culture or cultures around the world. We are, not a, we are not a world that's pursuing Jesus. And sometimes it takes a crisis to wake us up. And I'm not saying that's what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. But here's what I'm suggesting. It is in times of crisis, we start asking questions we would never ask other times, even as followers of Jesus. Is it not true if you're a follower of Jesus, you're asking questions about your life? What's truly important? The foundations are being shaken. What are we gonna do financially? Who are we trusting? It shakes us up and it forces us to ask questions that we should be asking all the time. And so one of the prayers in my life is that I want to be standing with Jesus. Yes, I want this to end, but what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. Do you remember that? Remember when Jesus said that? I put the note sheet on your, uh, on your note sheet there, the passage from Luke 9, volume one of Luke, where Jesus asked this question, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? We live in a world that's far from God. That's what the Bible says. And so what is God doing? What does he want to do? Let me paraphrase this. What good is it if the virus goes away, we discover a vaccine, the economy recovers, and we all go back as a country, as a nation, as a world to living our lives far from God? What does it profit a person to gain the whole world but to lose ourselves? And the reality is, as we've all experienced in our life, it's often in times of pain, it's in times of suffering that it opens us up to asking new questions. And one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, obviously famous Oxford prof, Cambridge prof, came to Christ later in life. I uh, was an agnostic and had a powerful encounter with Jesus, came to Jesus, and went on to write many books, you know, Chronicles of Narnia fame, but just many books, wide variety of books, just a brilliant man. But he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and it really deals with this question that we, we're facing right now with the coronavirus. If, if God is good and he's all-powerful, then why is the world so messed up? Why is there so much pain in the world? And the whole book deals with that, but one of the things he points out is that it's in times of pain 
that God often gets our attention, much like with our physical bodies, that we could have a cancer that's ravaging our body, but until, we be, until it begins to hurt and we have pain, we don't even go to the doctor. We don't even know we need to. And it's that pain that, saw, that saves our life. And this is what Lewis writes. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And then catch this, he says, no doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. There's no, no, no question, it creates tragedy. And it may lead to final and unrepented rebellion. It may not lead us back to God. He says, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment or change. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. And so I don't know why this crisis is happening. I don't know what it is, but here's what I know. It reminds us that we live in a fallen world and that we are a fallen race. And I believe that God is gonna use this, whatever else, he's gonna use this to bring many into his kingdom. And so I wanna stand with him. Yes, I wanna pray for it to end and pray for his compassion and his mercy for a solution, of course, but I wanna stand with Jesus more than anything else and say, Jesus, I don't wanna miss what you're doing in the world, and I wanna be a part in any way I can, be your hands and feet, to love people well, to serve them well, to share the good news of Jesus, to do whatever we can to help you carry out your agenda. That I wanna pray for the relief and the solution, yes, but I also wanna pray as he taught us to pray, that his name would be honored, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done on earth as it is in the heavens. Are you standing with Jesus and asking him how we stand with him in prayer and in action to accomplish his purpose in the midst of this crisis? Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for your rule over creation. And though it's hidden now, we can't even see it. It won't be revealed until you return. We are thankful for your life, your death, your resurrection, and your ascension where you were crowned king of creation. And Father, as we learned last week that we are built for times like this, that we have received the resurrected life of Jesus and so we pray, God, that we would rise up during this time to join you in your mission to bring all heaven and earth healed and restored under your leadership. And that we would stand with you for your purposes in prayer and in action to be your hands and feet to a world that is suffering, that we might bring peace and healing, but most of all, bring the message of the risen King who offers his life for our salvation and who offers his resurrection that we might rise with him to a new life, the life we were designed to live. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.